Thanks, Matt. Yeah, as Matt said, my name's Greg. Uh, I'm at Northview Community Church. I preached here once before. It was, I don't, I don't know when it was, but it was a while ago. And my wife and I, when uh, Matt asked if I could come preach here, we were like, yeah, totally. We love Central. Thank you so much for having me back. Uh, I'm preaching on a topic which I, I could very well be saying we and be at Northview. So if you hear me say we, even though I'm like not you officially, just extend grace to me because we believe the same thing when it comes to this issue. So if you hear me say we, it's all good, okay? You don't have to be like, do we hire him? Is he new on staff? It's okay. Don't worry about it. I'm going to be talking about baptism this morning. And uh, this is a, a topic that good Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, missionary-sending Christians disagree on, okay? So I have three, three guys who have really impacted my own um, love for Jesus and my uh, understanding of theology. Three guys are Timothy Keller, J.I. Packer, and Kevin DeYoung. Um, I haven't met any of them in person, but I've read a lot of their stuff. I disagree with all three of these guys on the issue of baptism. Um, they all hold a view called infant baptism or, or pedo-baptism, um, I don't hold that view. I hold believer's baptism. I think that's what the Bible teaches. But my point is that there's good, good people who, who love Jesus and believe the Bible believe different things. It's not an essential issue to be a Christian and hold the view on baptism that I hold. However, just because it's not an essential issue doesn't actually mean it's not important. Like, it's important enough for me to be here and not be watching the Seahawks game on a weekend I had off from Northview, right? So... So it's important enough for me to come here and be talking about it to us uh, because I do think the Bible teaches something and, and as, as Christians we should care about what the Bible teaches and we should follow what it teaches. So what I'm going to do here this morning is I'm going to uh, talk about all the different views. Well, the Catholic view I'm not going to touch a lot on. The Catholic view is that the act of baptism actually saves a baby, whereas the Protestant doctrines both of them see it as a symbol, a symbolic act or a sign. Uh, it just depends on who you see should be the recipient of this sign, okay? So I'm going to talk about the infant baptism view and about the believer's baptism view, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to try to make the case for, the ba- the case for uh, baptizing believers and their infants. I'm going to try to make that case so strongly that my, like, 17-month-old son who's here, like, I want to convince myself that we should baptize and get him wet here this morning, Okay. So I'm going to do my best to actually make that case as fairly and as persuasively as I can, that we should baptize infants. Then I'm going to raise some objections to that argument, and then I'm going to present the case for believer's baptism, okay? So I'm going to do my best to present the case for infant baptism, raise some objections, unless I'm convinced, and then we'll baptize my son this morning. It'll be a great morning for everybody. I'll raise some objections, and then we'll talk about the case for believer's baptism. This is going to feel more like theology class than sermon, So right now, I want all of you to give me um, forgiveness and grace, and I want you to open up your Bible. I want you to open it to, if you have, you're going to need at least three fingers for this job, okay? So one in Acts chapter 2, one finger in Romans chapter 4, and another finger in Romans chapter 6. I'm going to be referencing and reading other passages, but those three are the ones that we're going to deal with primarily. So those three chapters, if you have them, Acts chapter 2, Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 6. Okay? So here we go. Let's make the case for baptizing believers and their infants. So here's the different claims I'm going to make. The first one is that infant males 
were initiated into the Old Covenant, the people of Israel, through the sign of circumcision. Okay, so the sign is a physical marker of a spiritual or an internal reality, and infant males, or also those who came to Israel from the outside but were um, converts to, to followers of God, they were also expected to be circumcised. It was an initiation into the Old Covenant through circumcision. So Genesis 17, if you're taking notes, write down Genesis 17 as the main passage where this idea is taught that the people in the Old Covenant should be initiated through circumcision. Here's verses 9 and on of verse of Genesis 17. It says, God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Here's what it is. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant." This is really important for us to realize that the initiation into the Old Covenant, people of Israel, that happened through the the sign of circumcision, the outward action that demonstrates an internal reality, okay? Second point, making the case for infant baptism. Circumcision is primarily a spiritual sign. So Genesis 12, God comes to an old guy named Abram who has a barren wife. And he says, you guys are going to have lots of babies. I'm going to commit myself to you and to your family. You're going to have all kinds of children. I'm going to bless you. Your family's going to bless the world. So God comes to Abram in Genesis 12, Genesis 15. God makes that calling on him, uh, sealing it in a covenant. Abraham uh, is the recipient of this. And in Genesis 15, verses 5 and 6, it says, And he, God, brought him, Abraham, outside and said, look toward heaven, number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. He's saying this to an old guy without kids. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. So this is Genesis 15, before Genesis 17 explaining circumcision, Abraham demonstrates faith in God, okay? So now we go to Paul in Romans chapter 4. If you have that passage open, you can open it. We're going to read verse 9 through 11 where it says, For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So here's how the argument goes for infant baptism. Abraham received circumcision in light of his faith. However, his descendants received circumcision before they had faith because they're children of the promise. So Abraham receives the sign of circumcision because of his faith, but his descendants, because of his faith, will receive the sign of circumcision even though they can't yet believe because they're eight days old. Okay? Circumcision is primarily an outward physical sign of an internal 
reality. Third point of why infant baptism should be believed is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything God promised to Abraham and his descendants. This point is made in 2 Corinthians 1.20 pretty succinctly where Paul says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Everything God is trying to do in the world throughout history come to the culminating point in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Fourth point. Jesus commands baptism as a sign for the Christian life. So baptism, Jesus teaches, is the outward external sign that should take place as a sign for a Christian life. Matthew 8, or 28, starting in verse 18, where Jesus says to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is the sign that you're a follower of Jesus. So Jesus commands this. Fifth, in the case for infant baptism, baptism, therefore, is a parallel to circumcision. This point's made in Colossians 2, verse 11 and 12, where it says, In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. See, Paul's saying what circumcision was, baptism is. The two are a parallel now. So what that means is six. The new covenant community includes the children of believers. So in Matthew 19, some people are trying to bring the kids to Jesus the disciples stop them because they're like, oh, Jesus doesn't want to see the kids. And Jesus is like, bring the kids. It's great. I love kids. So clearly Jesus has an obvious love for children. And in Acts 2, if you have that finger on that passage, you can open to Acts chapter 2 where verse 39 says, For the promise is for you and for your children who, and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See, what is promised to the one listening is what is being promised equally to the children. And Romans 4.11, again, he received the sign, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. See, just as Abraham's descendants received circumcision before they had faith, because they're the children of the promise, so too the infants of believers should receive baptism because they are children of the promise. You guys tracking with me? Abraham's kids receive circumcision because they're children of the promise. Baptism is the parallel of circumcision, so the children of believers should be baptized because they are children of the promise. As the Presbyterian Church of the United States says, when a child professes faith at some point after baptism... That's the time in which baptism and all that it signifies takes full effect. Until that time, the child's baptism is regarded as the sign of the child's inclusion in the church community and all its benefits except the Lord's Supper. By virtue of his or her parents' faith and the promise of God to be their God and the God of their children. That's the argument. The new covenant community includes the children of believers because they are children of the promise. 
And if that doesn't convince you, there's some New Testament evidence, point number seven, that the early church baptized entire households, which would have included children. So Acts chapter 16 describes the uh, household baptism of Lydia and the household baptism of Philipp- the Philippian jailer. And in Romans, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul talks about baptizing the entire household of a guy named Stephanaeus. So because the early church is baptizing entire households, the households would have totally included children. This is, a, this is a evidence that the New Testament church, the early church, was practicing infant baptism. So here's the conclusion for the case for infant baptism. Just as infant males were circumcised as a symbol of their inclusion in Israel and as recipients of God's promises, so too children of believers should be baptized as a symbol of their inclusion in the church because they are children of the promise. So where's my son? Let's get him wet, right? There's a compellingness to the argument. There's a logic to it that, that makes a lot of sense of the biblical narrative. So I can totally see why people would believe it and hold to it strongly. There's a strong case to be made for it. I hope you feel it was somewhat compelling. If not, I didn't do a good enough job, and that's okay. I, I don't believe this view, though, so I have some objections to infant baptism. So here's how I'm going to raise my objections. I'm going to restate every argument that I just made because you're like, I don't know, I didn't know there was going to be seven of them, and I got lost around four. So I'm going to restate it, and then if I disagree with it, I'll let you know. Okay? So here we go. We're going to restate the argument, and I'm going to raise some objections to it. First claim was that infant males were initiated into the Old Covenant through the sign of circumcision. I agree. Second claim, circumcision is primarily a spiritual sign. Right? We got this back Romans 4, if you have it again, starting verse 9 this time. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So see, because Abraham received his circumcision after he had faith, that doesn't mean that that everyone had to have faith before they were circumcised because his descendants were all circumcised as babies even though they didn't have faith yet. So this sign, this act of circumcision, is a sign of essentially or primarily a spiritual reality, the faith that Abraham had. See, my objection to this is that circumcision was equally a sign of spiritual and national identity. So here's what I mean by it. Genesis 17, God comes to Abraham and says, you you had faith in me. This is the way you're going to keep the covenant, circumcise your kids. Abraham circumcises his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. If you know anything about the Bible, one of those sons is the son of the promise, and one of those isn't, yet they both received circumcision. So let's look at Romans chapter 9, starting verse 6. It says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So here's my question is if circumcision is primarily or fundamentally a spiritual sign, was Ishmael's circumcision illegitimate? Was that a wrong thing 
to do because he's not going to be a part of the promise. Isaac is. Well, no, it's not illegitimate because Ishmael shared in the ethnic identity of his dad. So he was a rightful recipient of this sign, even though he isn't one of the promise. That's important for us to realize because it's possible for someone to be circumcised physically but not partake in the spiritual ramifications. I'm going to say that again. It was possible for someone to be circumcised physically and not be a part of the spiritual ramifications. So here's the question. Is that the way the New Testament talks about baptism? That you can receive this sign and yet not have a part of the spiritual ramifications. Does the New Testament talk about baptism in that way? Okay, let's look at the third claim. The claim is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything God promised to Abraham and his descendants. Oh, yes and amen. Claim number four, Jesus commands baptism as a sign for the Christian life. Agreed. Let's look at claim number five. Baptism, therefore, is a parallel to circumcision. So Colossians 2 is where this argument is made, where it says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Circumcision, baptism, parallels. See, here's my objection, is that they're not actually direct parallels. They're related because they're both signs of initiation, right? You're initiated into the people of Israel through circumcision. You're initiated into the church, the new covenant community, through baptism. But that doesn't mean they're directly parallels. And Colossians 2 itself doesn't even support this view because it says that even though they're similar, circumcision was a sign given to infant males, whereas baptism is something that happens, verse 12 said, through faith. Circumcision was not given through faith. It was given because you were a descendant of Abraham. They're not direct parallels. They're both initiations, but they're not direct parallels. Also, circumcision and baptism aren't identical because God's gathering his people into his covenant communities in different ways that he did in Israel than he does in the church. So here's what I mean. I'm going to go back to Romans 9. Verse 6, it says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So here's my question. Is, is the church a continuation of ethnic, religious, national Israel? Or is the church a continuation of the children of the promise? Galatians 4, Paul answers this where he says, For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now you, brothers, church, like Isaac, are children of the promise. See, the church is a continuation of the children of the promise. And nowhere in the New Testament are those who are baptized described as not being children of the promise. So they're not identical in their their claim. You could be circumcised and not be a child of the promise. In the New Testament, you can't be baptized and also not considered children of the promise. So they're not direct 
parallels. They have similarities, but that doesn't mean they're identical in their, their meaning. The new covenant, what Christ has brought in by being the fulfillment of everything God was trying to do in the world, has some different ramifications now for God's people. It's not identical. Claim number six. The new covenant community includes the children of believers. Right? So we looked at how Matthew 19, Jesus loves children. They come to him. Acts 2.38 talks about the promises for you and for your offspring, your children. And Romans 4.11, if, uh, if you hold to the infant Baptist view or the pedo Baptist view, Romans 4.11 is your key text. It says, he received the sign, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And here's the argument that's made is that just as Abraham's descendants received circumcision before they had faith, Because they're children of the promise, so too infants of believers receive baptism because they are children of the promise. See, infant Baptists will say, yes, of course Abraham received his circumcision in light of his faith, but that doesn't mean that all of his children had the exact same experience. So new converts to Christianity are going to be baptized as believers, but their children should be baptized too because they are children of the promise. So here's my objection. Participation in the Old Covenant differs from participation in the New Covenant. You could participate in the people of Israel, the Old Covenant, because your daddy was Jewish. You participate in the New Covenant, the church, through faith in Christ. It doesn't matter who your daddy is. You participate in the church if you have faith in Jesus Christ. Let's go back to Romans 4, the key text for Paedo-Baptists, infant Baptists. Starting in verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 9, For we say, that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who, what's that word if you have your Bible open? Believe. The purpose was to make Abraham the father of all those who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What Paul is saying is that participation in the new covenant comes in a similar way to Abraham's participation in his covenant with God, through faith. This is the way God has always dealt with the world, is that those who are truly his children are those who exercise faith in him. So participation in the two communities aren't identical, and this key passage for Paedo-Baptists actually defeats the argument if you keep reading through verse 12. If you just listen to the words of Romans 4, through verse 12, it defeats the argument that they're trying to have it make. Your participation in the covenant of the new covenant, participation in the church, doesn't happen because your dad is a part of it. It happens because you have faith in Christ. 
So here's what the Presbyterian Church of the USA said. I quoted it before. I'm going to quote it again. When a child professes faith at some point after baptism, that is the time in which the baptism and all that it signifies takes full effect. Until that time, the child's baptism is regarded as the sign of the child's inclusion in the Christian community and all its benefits except the Lord's Supper by virtue of his or her parents' faith and the promise of God to be their God and the God of their children. Okay, I have a question, though, about that statement based on the New Testament. They say that the child by their baptism is regarded as included in the church community and all its benefits except communion. See, in the New Testament, the way you participate in the church was through communion. If you were under church discipline because you were sinning unrepentantly, you didn't care what they said, you didn't care that what you were doing was against God's word, you were sinning and you didn't care, the church would come to you and say, you can't partake in communion, you're not a part of the church. So for the argument to be that children are a full part of the community except for communion, has, the New Testament would have no categories for that. It's like, what, they're in the room? That's what they get to do. They get to be in the room and people won't kick them out. Listen, full participation in the church expresses itself through communion because what we're saying is, I belong to Jesus, what he's done on the cross and his resurrection. I I am saved and I'm in right relationship with other Christians. That's what communion signifies. So there's no category for the fact that you could be a full part of the community and all its benefits but not partake in the Lord's Supper. That's a mixing of categories. So here's um, the question, though, is what about that Acts 2 passage, right? If you still have your finger in that verse... Acts 2 says that you could be children, this promise is for you and for your children. So the promise language to the children continues in the new church, in in the new covenant, in the church in Acts chapter 2. So let's look at that text. Start in verse 37. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Let's stop there. So the context, Peter's preaching a sermon. People are having their hearts melted because of what Peter's saying about Christ and the gospel and what he's done for them. And they're like, oh my, what do we do now? In light of what you're saying about Jesus and who he is and his ministry, what are we supposed to do in response to that, Peter? So here's what he says in verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, what's the promise? the forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone from whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter says, repent and be baptized. Why? So you can receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can receive the promise. This promise is now for you and for your children and for all who are far off. So I have a question to ask. If this text is teaching that because the promise is for you and for your children, meaning that now you are a part of this covenant community because of the faith of your parents, Doesn't that mean those who are far off also have to be a part of this covenant community? 
The promise is for you, for your children, and all who are far off. What you do with children, you have to do with those who are far off. You can't hyphen that. You can't just send that away and not deal with it because you don't want to. It's right, what happens to the children is what happens to those who are far off. So what does that mean? What's the point of the promise then? If the promise isn't participation in the new covenant, what's the promise? The promise is the gospel message. Look, this message of Jesus and his birth and his death and his resurrection and his coming, again, this promise, this, this message for you is for you and your kids and everyone. This message is for everyone. It's not about who's participating in the new covenant. It's about how far does the gospel go. See, we know that also by how they responded because when Peter's done preaching, verse 41, those who received his word were baptized. So belief, receiving the word, preceded baptism. There's no mention of the children and those who are far off about being baptized. And then in verse 41, it says, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Who were added that day? Those who received the word and were baptized. Participation in the new covenant community occurs through belief and when you're baptized into that community. So your participation in the church is way different than how you would participate in the people of Israel. One of the key texts for Pado-Baptists is Acts chapter 2, but what Acts chapter 2 actually teaches is that those who are incorporated into the new covenant are those who believe and are baptized. Okay, the final claim that is brought up for infant baptism is that the early church baptized entire households, which would have included children. Right? Lydia's household is baptized. The Philippian jailer's household is baptized. Stephanus' household is baptized. So obviously that included children. That's how the argument goes. So here's my objection, is that the household argument is, is basically inconclusive for both sides. And if anything, it tilts towards believer's baptism. Here's how I'm going to make that case. First of all, there's no evidence that it's necessary that infants were a part of the household. Because when we think household, we think like daddy, mommy, kids, and like younger kids until like they're in the womb. That's the household. For the ancient world, the household was the family, probably some extended family, so you have to live with your in-laws. Woo. Um, your, your employees, servants of your family would live with you. It didn't have to be infants to be considered a household. There could be all kinds of people that lived in there. So one, it's unclear that it's, it didn't actually have to include infants. But secondly, it's unclear in the passages that talk about a household being baptized. It's unclear where the baptism and their belief all come into the equation. So we're going to look at it case by case because I want to show it to you that it's inconclusive. I want to, I, this is the, the, one of the great um, conversation enders with an infant Baptist is that well, whole households were baptized. So I want to prove to you that it's inconclusive. So the three different household baptisms, um, one, Lydia and her whole household in Acts chapter 16 starts, uh, says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, like expensive stuff. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her whole household as well, and then it continues on, but list, she was baptized, and her household was too, but there's no indication that the household believed before they were baptized. It just looks like she believed, was baptized, so was her house. Okay, so that's one case. Secondly, the Philippian jailer in his household. Acts 16, verse 30. 
Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So what I want you to see here is that prior to this occurrence of baptism, the jailer and his household, they all heard the gospel. That one's clear that everyone, before they were baptized, heard the word of the Lord spoken to them. Okay, let's look now at the one in 1 Corinthians, the household of Stephanus. Paul said, I did baptize the household of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 1, and then later in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, but you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. So we know that the household of Stephanus were converts, but in that one, we don't know at what point, right? Like, were they baptized as a household and then they converted? Were they converts and then they were baptized? The text doesn't really give us an indication. So what I want you to see here is that there's no open and shut case that what is happening in these household baptisms is infants being baptized as well. In one case, you have no explicit mention of anyone coming to faith in the household. In another one, you hear about the gospel being presented to them before baptism. In the other one, we know they're all becoming converts, but we don't know what the order was. See, my point is is that for this to be the slam-dunk silver bullet argument for infant baptism, it's really inconclusive. So you can't really rely on it because I actually think what the authors are trying to do in the household baptism accounts is just describe what happened rather than prescribe what we should be doing moving forward. But either way you look at it, it's not a conclusive argument for infant baptism that whole households were baptized in the early church. So what's my conclusion before I get to believer's baptism? My conclusion for this section is that Louis Burkhoff, is that he's the name of a Dutch... Uh, He's a Dutch Reformed theologian. Uh, I, I read a lot of his stuff, and I actually used mostly his argumentation in the claims I was making for infant baptism. This is what he said before making his theological claims for infant baptism. He said, It may be said at the outset that there's no explicit command in the Bible to baptize children, and that there is not a single instance in which we are plainly told that children were baptized. So here's what he's saying. If you read the New Testament, it's a hard case to make. But if you throw in other kinds of theological categories onto baptism from the Old Testament, you can kind of get there. See, as a Bible guy, that's not convincing. So while there's a compelling logic and theology behind infant baptism, when the relevant passages that are used to teach infant baptism are actually examined in their context, they don't prove infant baptism to be true, and some of them even refute it. So, let me make a case now for baptizing believers. You guys still with me? Okay, God bless you. Firstly, the first point for the case for baptizing believers is that baptism was commanded by Jesus as a sign for the Christian life. So it's an external marker of an internal reality. We get this from the Great Commission, Matthew 28. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So if you were in the early church, how would you know that you're a Christian? It's altar call, right? Or you raise your hand at a youth group. No, you're baptized. The way you know you're a participant in the local church is you are baptized. The way you know you're a disciple of Jesus is you are baptized. Baptism is commanded by Jesus as a sign, an initiation sign of the Christian life. 
Secondly, the language of the New Testament explicitly ties belief with baptism. Let's go back to Acts 2. We're going to start in verse 38. Peter says to those who are listening, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he continues on in verse 41 where he says, or where Luke writes, those who received his word were baptized. So here's some homework for you. If you haven't found my argumentation convincing yet, look through the New Testament at all the times baptism is brought up and look at all the different times it's explicitly linked with belief. It's not every single time, but if you were to just look at the evidence, it would be overwhelming that what the New Testament authors thought about baptism was it was tied with belief. The exceptions to the rule is no explicit link to the language of belief before baptism. So the New Testament explicitly links a person's belief with their baptism. Thirdly, the New Testament, in the New Testament, baptism symbolizes union with Christ doesn't symbolize a promise of potentially being united with Christ. Baptism symbolizes actual union with Christ. So Galatians chapter 3 verse 27 says it really succinctly, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Not might put on Christ one day when you come to faith later, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. See, to be baptized is to to recognize a union with Jesus. uh, Paul in Romans chapter 6, I hope, I think your finger might be in that passage too. If not, turn to Romans 6 with me, where Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin, to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? When did you die to sin? Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Oh, I hope you see what Paul's doing here. Baptism is the sign. It's an external marker of the internal reality of union with Christ. It's the marker that we belong with Christ. We, we, we die and we have a new life. Christ, baptism is a symbol of, of Christ's life and ministry. So Christmas, he, he comes as God with us to save us from our sins. He lives a perfect life, the life we couldn't live. Then he dies on the cross. We didn't stay dead. Praise God. He rose from the grave. And he's walking in the newness of life and he continues to be alive in a physical resurrected body and one day he's going to return to make all things new. Baptism is an outward marker of that story that we are dead to our sin and we are raised to a newness of life. Oh man, that's a great picture. So when you're baptized, it's a marker that you've died to your sin. So sin doesn't rule over you anymore. So you can look at the sin in your life and you can give it the Marshawn Lynch stiff arm and say, I don't want to be around you anymore. The Spirit can empower you to do that. You're not sin's slave anymore. The Spirit is giving you the ability to actually walk in greater 
holiness. It's not about perfection, but it's a trajectory of living and looking more like Jesus. Because you're dead to sin. It doesn't reign over you anymore. But not only that, but you're raised to a newness of life. So you get to walk forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. You get to move forward expecting eagerly the day that Christ will actually return to do what he said he would do. He has a great track record of doing what he says he's going to do. He said he's going to come back, make all things new. So we, our future is not one of hanging out in Philadelphia cream cheese commercials. Our, our future is one of physicality, be, being with God. The ultimate promise to Abraham is, I'm going to be God to your people. You're going to be with me. That's the ultimate joy that you get. But there's other parts of it too. We, we get bodies that won't break down and get cancer and get old. We get bodies that we can enjoy life the way it was meant to be enjoyed. Like, I might be able to play sports that day. I don't know. We'll be able to eat good food. We'll be able to look at good art. We'll be able to make good music. We have a fullness of life ahead of us because we're raised with Christ in the newness of life and we have forever to look forward to. Baptism is the symbolism of all of that. Man, that's great. What a powerful image. Believers are baptized to demonstrate outwardly what is true inwardly, that they are united with Jesus. No amen? Okay, that's okay. Okay, so what? What what does it matter for us? Well, first of all, you should believe. Like if you walked in off the street and you meant to go to the ICBC claims place, but you drove too far and you came in and you were too embarrassed to leave. So now you're here. Some guy's talking about baby's baptism and adult baptism. You don't know what's going on. Here's the point that you should hear, is that this church is about Jesus. He's a real person who really lived, who really died for your sin, who really rose again, and who's actually really coming back. That's massive implications for you, even if you don't know it. See, it means that outside of coming into this story, I have zero hope to give you. None. Sure, you might have a business that's kind of successful and make a lot of money, but you'll die one day. And after that, I have zero hope to give you. Only warnings if you're outside of Christ. And all the stuff I talked about of the newness of life. See, you know the world is broken. You know your life's not working the way it should, and the only way it's going to work the way it's supposed to is when Christ comes back and everything's made new. You don't get to be a part of that if you don't actually recognize that your heart is one of opposition towards God because you love playing God. Like you love doing things the way you want to do them. You love being able to make the rules and, and if someone gives you another rule, you like to spin it so that it applies to you more directly. You love to play God, but the problem is, is there's actually another God. He's the only real God and he's made a way to save you even though you've rebelled against him. He saved you through his own son. See, you need to hear this. You need to believe this gospel. I can't convince you only God can, but if you're here and you don't believe, man, you need to believe. But if you're here and you already believe, here's what we need to do. You need to be baptized. Jesus commands it. Jesus modeled it in his own life, but he explicitly commands it for his followers. So listen, if you say you love and follow Jesus, but you haven't been baptized, there's a problem there. Because you say, Jesus is my Lord, I'll follow him wherever I go unless he asks me to be baptized, and I don't want to because I'm kind of shy. Or I don't want to for fill in the blank. See, a lot of people don't want to get baptized because they think they have to be more mature in their faith before they can be baptized. But baptism is the symbol of the initiation into the Christian life. Man, it's just the start of the race. 
The gun has gone off. Jesus has said, be baptized. Are you going to get off the blocks or not? So if you haven't been baptized yet and, and you are a believer, you need to be baptized. Because maybe you came to faith at like a youth group thing or a camp. And now it's been like 15 years of you coming to church and you've never actually been baptized. See, I, that's a problem. If you call yourself a Christian and you haven't yet been baptized, there's no reason for you not to be baptized. There's forms you can fill out later. You should do it today. Because here's the thing, when someone asks you, if you were in the early church and someone asked you, are you a Christian? You would respond by saying either yes or no because you'd look back on your baptism. You could say, yeah, I know I'm a Christian. Of course I'm a part of the church. I was baptized. See, we, we filled in the blank usually with stuff like, I don't know, I prayed a prayer one day in my room or I came forward at a church service and someone prayed for me and it was a great moment. But that moment of initiation into the church actually is, is baptism. So you should be baptized. But here's another one. I'm going to poke a little bit harder here, but I can't because I'm a guest preacher. And what, you don't have to ask me back, so it's okay. If, if you were baptized as an infant and confirmed later on, you need to be baptized. Like as a believer, because what happened when you were an infant wasn't baptism. Biblically, it's not baptism. Is it meaningful? Yes. Was it, was it an important moment for your family? Of course. But it's not baptism. So you need to be baptized if you want to follow Jesus. That's what the New Testament teaches. And I know some of you are thinking, because I've heard it from people in my own church, but do you know how hurtful that's going to be for my family? Like how important that Baptist, the baptism moment was for my, my parents. And my response is, you know, it very well might hurt your family, but you can actually approach it from a, a disposition of thankfulness, right? You could say, Mom, Dad, the reason why I'm being baptized is because you raised me in a house that, that taught me to love Jesus and his Bible. And I've, I've read it, I've studied it, I'm convinced that he's calling me to be baptized as a symbol of my union with him as a believer. See, I'm just doing what you wanted me to do all along, which is follow and listen to the Bible. I'm just doing what you taught me to do, which is obey Jesus. See, they might not like that, but at least you can do it from a disposition of thankfulness. But the other angle of it is even if they keep feeling hurt by it and tell you you can't do it or else you can't come to family dinner or whatever, you have one Lord. And her name's not Mom. His name's Jesus. And he's saying be baptized. So yeah, it might make family dinners awkward, but your ultimate job is not to make family dinners comfortable. It's to follow Jesus and what he commands you to do. Believe and be baptized. See, it's commanded as this initiation to the Christian life, and, and it's necessary, actually, for at Northview, it's called membership here. It's called ministry partnership. It's, it's a necessary part of this because we, we actually believe that believers should be baptized and that if you haven't been baptized as a believer, you haven't actually been baptized and you can't fully participate in the local church because you haven't been initiated into it yet through baptism. So if you keep coming saying, I want to be a ministry partner, I want to be a ministry partner, but don't make me get baptized, the answer is going to be no, 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 because you haven't actually been baptized yet. So hear me on this one. If your response to, to Matt and the other leaderships giving you the no on that is one of anger or perpetual opposition, my question is going to be, why do you want to be a ministry partner here? 
It's like if your first opportunity to listen to the leadership about their biblical teaching that they've, they have founded in Scripture, if your first response is, I don't want to listen to you, how's it going to go when you're in sin and you're not repenting and your church calls you to repent? What's your disposition going to be like? You started out in opposition. Why would you change your mind now? But look, if you actually come to the church and you say, listen, I believe that what God has called me to do is be baptized, even though it's going to be hard for me. And that reflects a spirit that's actually willing to be shaped by those who God's put in leadership over you. So it might not seem like a big deal, but your heart towards leadership on this matter actually says a lot about what's going to happen when they come to you later down the road to talk about some other things that might not be so comfortable. And all of it is for your good and for your flourishing, and so you can be a part of that day yet to come. And you got to be baptized. A friend, um, his name's Scott, grew up in a Reformed church, family loved Jesus, taught him to read the Bible, came to the point where uh, he was baptized as a baby, he was confirmed later on, he got to the point in his life where he was reading the Bible and he was convinced that the Bible taught that believers should be baptized. It was really hard, he had some awkward conversations with family members, it was long um, awkward family dinners and all that. But he did it because he wanted to obey Jesus because he said, Greg, Jesus is my Lord. See, if you, I know it's a topic where good Christians disagree, but at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, what does the Bible teach? And are you actually willing to follow Jesus where he's leading you? Or to put it another way, do you actually belong with Jesus? and prove it. Let me pray for us. Father, you're good. Your word is good. Your church is good. Father, we, we ask that you would do your work by your spirit as each person needs. If it's an encouragement, if it's a challenge, if it's a shaping, whatever it is, God, do your work. You need to do it or else it's going to be pointless because we can't do it on our own. God, I pray you would bless this church, that you would um, have it be a church that is united, a church that is pure, a a church that is committed to following Jesus and reaching out to Chilliwack and the surrounding area with the gospel message, that they would be a church on mission to see people repent and be baptized because Jesus, man, he's worth it. We're praying all this for your fame, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.